Hi, my name is Will Stroll and I'm a partner at Pinsent Masons, an international law firm. In this series of podcasts, I'll be taking a brief look at the energy transition and what getting to net zero might look like, as well as looking at some of the challenges facing wind, solar and hydrogen. For this particular podcast, we're taking a deepish dive into solar and its journey over the past 10 years, as well as looking at where it might go next. I'm delighted to be joined by Vincent Backer, who has been involved in a number of aspects of renewable energy and power and works with Entoria Energy. Uh, so, Vincent, welcome to the podcast and why don't you say hello? Thanks, Will. Thanks for the invitation and hello to everybody who's listening. Um, brilliant. So, so, Vincent, you know, how long have you been involved in the in the power sector and what's what's your sort of background? Well, I've been in uh, in energy actually all my uh, working life. Uh, I started my career uh, 11 years ago at uh, Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, it's a Dutch uh, oil and gas major, so that's really the traditional uh, traditional oil and gas. Um, I did it first in Netherlands, then in Kazakhstan, and then in 2014 I moved to Singapore, where again I worked with Shell for several years. Uh, early 2018, I decided to quit my job and move into renewables. I started a investment platform for renewable energy projects to connect projects and capital. And uh, when it unfortunately did not materialize, uh, end of last year, I joined Antoria Energy, uh, which is a global uh, solar project developer active in Southeast Asia and Latin America. And I'm responsible for the finance function and the investments and the corporate finance aspects of the company. Fantastic. Well, look, I mean, I think, you know, if we look back over the last 10 years, there's been quite a ride in terms of solar. So, you know, digging up some statistics, I've seen that global annual solar installations grew more than sixfold in the past decade, from 16 gigawatts in 2010 to 105 gigawatts in 2019, and probably 140 gigawatts, maybe the end of 2020. Uh, In the meantime, you know, the price of solar modules dropped from $2 a watt in 2010 to 20 cents per watt at the end of 2019, which is a sort of 90% price reduction. So, you know, um, you know, what, is, what have you seen? You know, what, what are some of the drivers towards solar that you are seeing and, and how does this fit with what, what Antorio are doing? Oh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's been a remarkable journey for, 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 for solar where I think uh, maybe even as, 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 as late as 10 years ago, solar was seen as a bit of a cute charity thing. It would never work. It's subsidized. It can never replace anything. Um, it was seen as a bit of a charity. Uh, look at me being green thing from your roof. Uh, I think until uh, up to 15 years ago, the only application people really saw for solar uh, was for off-grid uh, situations in uh, where, where there's really no grid available. Um, I think for me the most important moment uh, has been 2016, because 2016 was the year where solar power became cheaper than coal power uh, from a levelized cost of electricity. So that is the moment where if a country needs more capacity because they have a growing population or more electrification or all power plants are shut down, from 2016 it became cheaper to install uh, solar power than to install coal power on a per unit of electricity basis. And that is, of course, uh, a big driver behind this change. And of course, you know, 2015, we saw, you know, the the COP21 in uh, Paris Accords in in France. So, you know, that led to quite a lot of of political will and global attention turning their minds to renewable energy and sort of trying to get to net zero. So do you think that's kind of that's been a large factor as well? Or is it purely on a price aspect that do you think that's driving the kind of the boom? 
Uh, I think one uh, one reinforces each other because the moment there's a lot of political attention and a lot of political push, of course, more money flows into R&D. Uh, there's more demand, uh, which leads to lower unit prices as as, as factories get get gets more adept at uh, at producing it. So there's a, 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 which in turn makes them cheaper, which increase uh, of course political uh, attention. So there's this uh, there's this virtuous circle between the two. Um, I would say that there's a bit of a split uh, in the world, as you might expect. Uh, in Europe, uh, a lot of the investments in renewable energy and, and, and solar with it is really driven by, as you said, uh, COP21. We need to be greener. We aspire a certain green energy mix. Um, those are rich countries. They can afford it. Uh, they have good infrastructure. So it's really a matter of how much you want to play for the replacement. I would say that Southeast Asia is really the opposite. Um, if you look at Vietnam, uh, it's, it's, it's a developing country. I mean, it's, it's, it's growing remarkably, but it's not a rich country. Their reason to adopt that much solar is a pure economic one. It's simply the cheapest form of electricity. So I would say that it's, it's really a divide in the world of what are the drivers for, for, for countries to adopt uh, renewable energy as much as they do. I mean, that's interesting. You talk about Vietnam as well. I mean, so Vietnam, I would say, has been one of the sort of massive success stories in Southeast Asia, particularly for solar uh, and renewable energy. So, you know, installing almost um, up to five gigawatts in its first year on, the, on with the solar PV utility scale and rooftop solar in 20, 2020, you know, installing up to sort of nine gigawatts as well. So that's been crazy numbers, which we've seen. Um, are you seeing any sort of issues with that? I mean, with with large scale installations of solar, you know, people start to talk about the curtailment issues. And has that been a factor in kind of any issues with uh, the financiers, you know, not being as open to lending in some of these jurisdictions, do you think? Uh, I think you're right. It has been a bit of a challenge. Um, I I think we need to, because you, you mentioned two things here. You mentioned the curtailment and you mentioned the, uh, the bank's willingness to finance. And though they're related, they're quite different in a way. Um, I think the curtailment risk has not been as bad as people have expected. Uh, yes, there's places where there's been a bit of curtailment, uh, and that's not good because it impacts your revenues. Uh, but it's, it's, it, 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 in the areas where it has been impacted, it has been relatively limited to, to, to several percent. Um, so overall, that effect is, is not as bad as people have expected. Um, I think Vietnam needs to hold off building uh, more infrastructure, more solar, because the grid is getting a bit of an overburden. So they would need to heavily invest in grid capacity before they can add more. Now, the challenge, one small side note, would have been there. Uh, if they would have gone for coal power, uh, they would have similarly faced constraints on the grid, of course. Um, the second thing is a bit different and a bit more technical. When you look at banks' willingness to finance, um, banks, of course, and you're a lawyer, so you know exactly what I mean. Uh, lawyers and banks, they don't look at reality. They look at what's on paper. Sorry for the for the grab here. Um, and, and one of the okay. weaknesses about the uh, the Vietnam uh, the Vietnam contract is that there's not really a protection uh, that protects you against certain curtailments. So if for some reason uh, hardly any power can be taken, you will lose all your revenue. So from the from from the banks that would look at really paper based way of doing it, they say, well, I don't have downside protection. This this this, this contract doesn't guarantee me offtake, so I cannot finance these projects. So one of the uh, one of the one of the, the, the big complaints from large international groups has indeed been that the Vietnam PPA is as they call it non-bankable. We cannot uh, give a loan on it because the the, the 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 return guarantees are just not strong enough. 
And, and what's interesting is I've seen is, you know, for example, in Taiwanese offshore wind, which is you know a, a different market completely, but we see also the same issues about, you know, no provisions for curtailment. Um, and yet that has seen been seen to be, you know, a very bankable PPA. And we've seen a you know, huge amount of investment flooding into that. And we haven't seen the instant international lenders flooding into Vietnam at the moment. So, you know, do you think that, you know, is that just because it's country and market risk that people are not quite willing to take on Vietnam or that, you know, they're not not quite um, as satisfied with the track record of the off taker in Vietnam? Yeah, you're very right. It's, it's a remarkable difference. And uh, what I have understood from uh, from some people that have compared the terms of, of the Vietnam uh, with the ones that are very common in Europe, uh, they're indeed quite similar. And uh, what I hear from you is similarly for Taiwan. Uh, so I think it's really the track record. If you go to to, to, to Taiwan, it's, it's it's a country that has 30 years of very stable nuclear power, well-developed grid. Uh, if you go to a place like, uh, like the Netherlands, where I'm from, uh, you also have a, a grid that has, has, I mean, I don't remember any power outage more than two minutes uh, since I was born. Um, so you can imagine that uh, even though there's a, there, the provisions might legally not be strong enough, uh, there's enough track record and enough reputation that, that, that banks are willing to take the risk. And so looking at Southeast Asia, you know, where are you seeing our sort of hot markets and probably excluding Vietnam, but where are you seeing a lot of activity at the moment? And is it in sort of utility scale solar PV or is it in rooftop solar or a mix of the two? Or what are you seeing at the moment? Um, so I think the, the, the really big, enormous construction boom uh, that, that we have visited in Viet- Vietnam, I don't think will be easily repeated. Uh, Thailand had their scheme several years ago. Malaysia did LSS 1, 2 and 3 uh, and 4. Um, so in that sense, we're, we're running a bit out of power. Um, I see still a lot of activities in Vietnam rooftop solar. Um, there's still a lot of companies that are now seeing that uh, that their neighbors are saving a lot on their electricity. Uh, so they're, they're going for it. Um, Taiwan is an extremely strong market uh, because uh, the, 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 the cost of capital is, is relatively low. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's, it's a more stable country. And the country wants to remove all the nuclear power and doesn't want to be as reliable on LNG. So that's a great market to, to be in. Um, Japan uh, still has uh, quite a number of old uh, feed-in tariff projects that are now uh, people are rushing to, to finalize. Uh, so it's still a good market. Uh, staying close mm-hmm. to home, uh, Thailand, again, I see more on the rooftop side than on the uh, utility skill side, because as utility, they kind of ran out of the easy options. Um, yeah, the big unknown, in my opinion, is um, is what Singapore going to do. Singapore is already experimenting a bit with Malaysia to import more power. And if that works well, um, of course, Singapore could uh, could, could easily uh, motivate Malaysia to build several gigawatts of solar power and feed it back to Singapore. That That's a potential opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and then a place where people are always hoping that it will happen, but I'm not sure if, when it will happen. Uh, is Indonesia. Indonesia has hardly any uh, grid-connected utility uh, solar, and 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 the rooftop solar is becoming uh, a bit more known. Uh, it's very far behind any other country in Southeast Asia. I mean, I think you're completely right. I mean, thanks for that. It's a really good roundup of the different jurisdictions, and I think Indonesia, I view, is, is kind of the sleeping giant. It's you know a huge market. It, it's clearly fantastic uh, solar irradiance and it will be a perfect market for solar you know especially on the kind of slightly more distributed side without the need for you know large-scale infrastructure on the grid so much Um, but I think you know we're seeing there are constraints there in developing solar at the moment but maybe that will come in the the next few years. 
I think the problem with Indonesia is twofold. The, the regulatory framework is extremely difficult for solar, um, even though there's officially a rate at which you can sell it back, uh, which is considered quite low. It's actually impossible to actually get the permissions to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, utility solar is basically out of the question because it's blocked by uh, the coal power uh, lobby, uh, so to speak. Um, but also on a pricing level, uh, Java has excess power and the power prices are, are are so low that you would need to offer a PPA price to, to corporate off-takers uh, that is lower than what you would offer in, in, in Singapore. Uh, and that makes it, it makes it very difficult to do business. Okay. And for the rooftop solar, I mean, are, are you normally seeing this as a direct corporate PPA between, you know, the solar in, uh, developer who will just install the panels on the on the roof and a direct PPA with the direct off-taker, you know, who, the owner of the building? Or are you seeing those more as being a kind of a sale back to the grid, which we've seen in quite a number of regulatory changes recently to allow that in, in a number of Southeast Asian jurisdictions? Yeah, you're right. And, and I think uh, Vietnam, of course, again, uh, was a good example there where EVN said, okay, all the excess, uh, if your project is small enough, we will buy all the excess power that, that the client is not consuming. Um, and that's a really important uh, driver. Um, you can imagine that a business that doesn't work on Sunday, uh, doesn't need power on Sunday, doesn't want to pay for power on Sunday. So for a rooftop solar developer like us, if the client says, well, I don't want to pay for the power on Sunday, uh, then what we need to say is, okay, well, we need to increase your price for the other days of the week with 16% then. Um, mm-hmm. So you can imagine that the facility of, of, of buying back the excess power uh, as a huge difference of the, the, the price that, 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 that the companies like us can offer the clients. Um, so that, that, that's, that's a, really important, uh, a really important mechanism. That's interesting. So you're seeing a sort of a, these corporate PPAs are a bit of a mix between, you know, most of the powers off taken directly by the corporate PPA tenant you know, the, the owner of the building and a proportion of it may be taken by as just sold back to the grid, which just allows you to offer a lower overall price. Yeah, correct. Well, there's a bit of a dist- I mean, of course, all these schemes are more or less meant for people to uh, install sort of for self-consumption and only feed the excess big back to the grid to kind of make it uh, make it easier. Um, I know there have been places, and again, in Vietnam, some people have built uh, projects with the sole purpose to sell it back to the grid. Um, yes, those are often technically or legally a bit shaky, um, so I'm not too sure to what extent those to, those contracts will ultimately uh, ultimately survive. No, I do understand they are doing some inspections at the moment because I think um, some buildings have been constructed just for the sole purpose of having solar <laughs> to sell back to the grid. So I do understand they are doing some spot checks at the moment, and we'll, you know, I'm sure they'll weed weed out some of the more fraudulent ones. But I think that the bulk do appear to be very genuine, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, talking about kind of what are the key challenges to uh, successful investment, um, you know, I suppose for the, on the rooftop solar side, it's securing a, a good PPA and tariffs. But I suppose that applies equally for utility scale solar as well. I think the two are extremely uh, different. Um, and that has made me that, that mainly has to do with, uh, with the depth financing component. Um, the. Of course, these are uh, when, when you install the, the, the amount of sunshine in a year is extremely stable. Uh, the deviation between a bad uh, sun year and a good sun year is maybe five max ten percent. Uh, so and, and and solar panels they come with a twenty five year warranty from the from 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 the from the factory. Uh, in other words, these are extremely stable uh, revenue streams once the solar panels are installed. Um, hence, they would be ideal for debt financing. And here comes the big difference: the moment I can do a utility solar project in, uh, in say in Europe. Um, 
we already have established that the returns are, the, the revenues are extremely stable, except, of course, is the off-taker going to pay me? Now, if that's a European government, which generally would have a double A or a triple A credit rating, um, that means the bank will look at these projects as extremely safe and will be able to lend you money at, well, in euro, maybe 2 or 3% interest rate, and they can easily finance 95% of the total uh, of the total uh, capital need. So, uh, if the project, if I if I aspire a 15% equity return, if I can get my debt financing so cheap, I can accept a very low PPA price from the utility projects because I can get very cheap debt. Um, the project with the, the the problem that I would have in Asia, and especially with rooftop projects is that I cannot get those sort of debt facilities because the projects are too small, the banks are not used to it, they don't know what to do with it, um, the, the off-taker doesn't have a credit rating, so the bank is a bit hesitant to give me an, uh, an advantageous interest rate. So it usually comes down to a significant part of the capital cost, if not all initially, uh, is done by equity, uh, which means I need a much, much, much higher price to generate the same returns that I would have for the same project somewhere in Europe. And are you seeing, I mean, that, that seems, you know, so obviously the cost of capital just becomes a lot higher for the smaller rooftop projects. Are you seeing possibilities down the line for where you have a, a built out portfolio that, you know, developers are able to then refinance and gain, you know, more favorable terms of finance, which would allow them to have greater capital available for future investments? Or is that just not something that you've seen so far? I do. I do see it. Uh, it's, 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 it's happening. Uh, companies are doing it. Um, it requires a certain size. I would say in general, uh, if you're not talking about a $20 million portfolio, then quite often the banks don't want to talk to you. Um, it's only a few banks that do it in Asia. Singapore has a few that do it. In, in Indonesia, banks just don't want to touch it. Um, so you can imagine, and, and, and to build a portfolio on equity uh, up to $20 million, uh, is, of course, a pretty high amount for a smaller developer to, to achieve. Okay, and, and in the projects that you're seeing in, in Southeast Asia as well, are you normally finding that there are sort of you know, ownership restrictions, so you need to find local partners to work with? I mean, I suppose it depends on every jurisdiction that you work in has slightly different regulations, so you, you, know, you need to tailor the solution depending on the jurisdiction. Correct, and that's that's an absolute must. Uh, to, 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 so, yeah, one thing that, uh, that that I've been doing is to constantly keep myself up to date and informed uh, on the uh, the policies, the regulations, uh, the local markets in in every country that we're active. Because um, you're very right, that, uh, a, the, a pure PPA contract, as I can easily do in Singapore, uh, would technically speaking be illegal in the Philippines or Indonesia. Uh, and uh, indeed, the ownership of, for instance, electricity generating uh, assets. Um, is, 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 is bound to local ownership restrictions in Indonesia. Um, it's something that you can usually work around with. Uh, either you can make your solar project, instead of a PPA in, in which you sell power, you can make it into a long-term lease, um, in which case you're not selling electricity anymore. Um, local ownership restrictions, uh, indeed, uh, you, you're sometimes required to find local partners. Of course, you can do a combination of equity and, say, convertible debt uh, to still have uh, to still have a certain uh, a, a larger share than purely the, uh, the the equity ownership share, uh, but it's important, especially in the Philippines, to find a local partner that you can co-invest with. 
And going back to your, you know, the startup that you were that you were working on, I mean, I understand that was trying to find, you know, attract capital to projects. I mean, so what, what was the gap there that you were finding, you know, what, what were you trying to solve there in terms of the, you know, the issue? What we try to solve is the fact that um, solar is, is, is cheap. The projects are commercial. Um, a lot of people want solar on the rooftops. Um, and there's a lot of developers that really are looking for capital. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of uh, investors that are really screaming for green returns, and they can't find each other. Uh, the renewable energy landscape is massively fragmented. Uh, you can imagine in a traditional oil and gas, there's only a few oil and gas companies, so they know uh, who to call. Uh, when it comes to uh, renewable energy projects, they tend to be much smaller, so there's a lot of local players. Um, I, I, I supported one project. It was uh, a mini-grid project, a $10 million project, so it's not small, in the jungle of Kalimantan, a local developer that technically quite capable, but clearly not a party that knows how to make beautiful M&A slide packs and not somebody that has a few private equities on the speed dial. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of investors in Singapore that are, that, that are specifically set up for renewable energy, but especially during COVID restrictions, how will those investors find that project that I'm working on? Uh, hence, we tried to set up a digital platform that would connect it to. Well, it sounds like it. You know, it certainly is. A, you know, would have been a really useful platform. And I suppose in the COVID year, it's, it's probably quite tough. But I think you know, I think you're completely right. There's a lot of um, institutional investors out there who are looking for green returns, and there's a lot of developers trying to, you know, um, find the right partners. So it's just a question of matching the two up. I mean, yeah, exactly. And maybe to give a bit of an anecdote, um, uh, in 2019. I've been to at least four conferences that were titled something like Unlocking Capital, Moving Green Capital, Mo Mobilizing Green Finance. Um, so conferences specifically on this issue, why is the money not flowing to where it should go? And I guess, is it a problem of scale? So investors are generally looking for slightly larger projects or portfolios of project um, and developers often only have one or two smaller projects. So it's just a question of how do you package these projects up to be of a substantial size of, you know, which will make them of interest to the larger institutional investors? You're very right. I think you touch upon the most important point, which is the size. And uh, with size, it's two things. Uh, one of them is, is, is simply the amount. Um, to do a uh, $500 million project, uh, there's certain fees to be earned. It's kind of worth it. Um, for a, a $2 million project, uh, it's just a lot of work to do to invest $2 million. Um, that, that's one thing, right? You can imagine some investors saying, well, actually, hmm, let's go, for, um, let's go for, uh, for, for bigger projects. But there's something else, a bit more subtle when it comes to a different uh, project, when, when a project size. Um, if you look at the traditional project finance, it's really aimed for large infrastructure projects, uh, an airport, for example. Um, if you look at the contracts and the agreements and the legal structure, those are extremely complex, very well thought through. The design is perfect. The uh, agreement about the lending rights, the agreements with the government, every I is dotted in endless agreements and, 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 and ways of working. Um, for smaller projects, you can't really do that. Uh, the developers are not only a bit less professional, uh, you also cannot do the level of sophistication that you can do for larger projects. So you can imagine that a small developer cannot meet the, the, the criteria in terms of documentation and professionalism that some of the investors ask for. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that is, a, is a big problem. So, I mean, so, so, so the final thoughts we're coming to the end of the podcast, you know, what do you think is the future for solar in Southeast Asia? Is it going to be more utility sale projects, increase in rooftop solar, combination of the two? 
Um, what are your thoughts? I think a lot of everything uh, will we'll see a lot more of, 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 of all of uh, the things you mentioned. Uh, I think more, I think there will not be a single uh, office building or warehouse in the next five years that will not have solar panels on their roof. Uh, I mean, you would be stupid not to. Uh, I think utility skill, wherever there's a spot of land available, whenever there's capacity needed during the day, I'm 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 convinced that uh, that countries will 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 utilize that to put more solar down. Um, other trends that I might see is in in in, in a land scarce place like Singapore, you might see more floating solar in uh, in the in the Strait of Johor, for example. Um, and something that's a bit of a question mark for me, where I'm not yet as convinced, uh, is the is the solar and storage combination. Uh, solar works very well during the day, uh, but clearly the sun doesn't shine at night. So we would, if you really want to run 24/7 on solar, or at least a larger part of the day, uh, we need to produce more solar during the day, which we can then uh, which we can then send, uh, put in batteries, and consume later. Currently, the price of any storage is not yet commercially viable uh, to make this interesting. So that's my 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 first question mark. And the second question mark that I have in the developments over the next five years is about regional connections. Um, at this moment, every country has their own grid, with maybe a few small connections here and there. Um, it, it it might happen at some point that we get huge connection cables. Uh, for instance, the plan that has already been directed to put power from Australia to Singapore or maybe from Saudi Arabia to to, 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 to Europe, uh, those sort of projects. Uh, that's another question mark, whether those will take off. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I've seen all of those projects and all of those ideas, and they're quite fascinating to see where they'll end up. So I think, you know, thanks for those thoughts. That's been really helpful. Um, and that's all we have time for. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast on the energy transition. And in the following episodes of this podcast series, we'll be looking at the varying types of renewable energy technologies, how to finance renewable energy projects, as well as looking at some of the issues that investors and developers may face in developing these sorts of projects. Many thanks for joining us and do please get in touch if you have any questions.